when I was a senior in college, I took a, a class on uh, 20th century theology, and uh, one of the things that we had to do at the, at near the end of the semester was to write a paper about our own personal key to theology. And the hard part of that was deciding what it was. What is that, what is that key that kind of unlocks and everything else, and everything else hangs on it. Uh, so anyway, I, I did my paper, and the day we turned in our papers, uh, there were about a dozen students in the class, and we took turns going around and sharing a little bit about what our key to theology was, and then other, you know, other students could ask questions about it. And so a couple of, a couple of people had shared, and then suddenly our professor, uh, Dr. Louis de Gracia, stopped us. And he said, he said, uh, how many of you said the resurrection. And I raised my hand. And I was the only one. And he said, well, I just wanted to find out because he sort of, sort of, that's, that's sort of the classic definition uh, in, in traditional Christianity of the key to theology would be the resurrection of Jesus. And a lot of the other classmates, they, they had come up with some really great stuff, you know, very creative kind of responses for their key to theology. And uh, so where I sort of lacked creativity, uh, hopefully I made up for in classic Christianity. So anyway, today we're going to be looking at a, uh, uh, a section of the Apostles' Creed that includes the resurrection of Jesus. And we're also going to be looking at some of the historical foundations for believing in his resurrection. Now, you might ask, why do we even need an Apostles' Creed, right? We, we got the Bible. Isn't that going to be enough? And I would say, well, yeah, I, I can see your point, but uh, the Bible is a really big book. And a lot of times it's easy to get lost in the forest because of all the trees. So the creed is like a signpost pointing the way to keep us from drifting off course. Now, maybe for some of you, this whole idea of having a creed is just a giant turnoff, like, it feels like, you know, somebody's kind of forcing their beliefs on you. And, and, and so I would say, let me try to suggest another way to look at the creed and what its value is here for us. So I'm going to share with you uh, three things. I'll just kind of go through them quickly here right now. First, it gives us clarity. Uh, we need clarity not only to know what to believe, but what not to believe. You know, in the second and third, third, second and third centuries, uh, some Christians were falling into uh, a belief called docetism. It's what historians call it. Uh, it's the idea that, that Jesus only appeared to be human and that he didn't really have a physical body. But from the very beginning, Jesus' inner circle of disciples, later called apostles, said, yes, Jesus was a physical, uh, he was physically born, he had a human body, and so, one of the purposes of the Apostles' Creed is to give us clarity on matters like that. And the Creed also gives us continuity. We walk in a faith that's been passed down to us from the earliest days. You know, the earliest, uh, the first version of the Apostles' Creed uh, was written in the second century. It was called the Old Roman Symbol. And it was a summary of the teaching of Jesus' Apostles. Professor Michael Bird from Australia says, publicly reciting the creeds means that we stand in a single unbroken line uh, that stretches all the way from Jesus and the apostles forward to the churches of our day. So, 
the Apostles' Creed gives us clarity and continuity and also gives us commonality. Now, here's what I mean. Um, our, our Roman Catholic Roman Catholic sisters and brothers have a different style of worship than we do. And so also do our Pentecostal sisters and brothers. But our roots run in the same soil. Together we affirm the Apostles' Creed and we unite in our common faith. I want to show you uh, this morning a, a video of the Apostles' Creed. And uh, the language is only slightly different, and where it is, I'm going to address that in a little bit. So let's watch. Part of the creed, there's a phrase in there that says that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. Now, we wonder, what is the meaning of Jesus' death? What did it accomplish? Well, the Bible gives us a kaleidoscope of images about that, many different windows to look at to understand what Jesus did for us on the cross. And one of those images is that Jesus, uh, on the cross, let the evil of humanity and the evil of imperial power and the evil of Satan do their worst to him. Jesus' enemies thought that they, had, they, that they had all the power and they were going to get rid of him. But by laying down his life, Jesus demonstrated what true power is. True power. It's like I told the kids. It's, when, when you're treated really bad, it's, it's turning around and doing good in return. It's, it's serving. It's self-sacrifice. Jesus took in all our sin and idolatry and our mad thirst for power as if he were a sponge soaking in all of that poison. So on the cross, rather than being Jesus' defeat, turned out to be his great victory. And that's what the resurrection proves, that the, the cross 
was not a defeat, but rather a victory. So anyway, here's the part of the cross that we're going to focus on today. Uh, let's, let's say it together, shall we? He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Now, you probably notice that the top line you see on the screen there is different from what we saw in the video. In the video it said he descended into hell. Another version says he descended into Hades. Uh, the one in the United Methodist hymnal just leaves that line out completely. So what's up? So it goes back to the question that I've heard several times. What happened to Jesus after he died on Friday before he was raised on Sunday? His body was in the tomb. Where was his spirit? Well, the Old Testament talks about the afterlife. Uh, and it says that, uh, that the dead, uh, they, they conceived of going to a place called Sheol, which is kind of a shadowy underworld place of the dead. And ancient Jews came to believe that there were two sections of Sheol, a, a good section for the righteous and a, a kind of like paradise, and then a not-so-good section for the unrighteous. So Sheol is just kind of a, almost a generic word, meaning the place of the dead. And then the word Sheol was uh, then translated into New Testament Greek as the word Hades. And Hades is not the same as hell. I think it's, it's possible to read the, the New Testament and, and say that no one will be able, in hell until after the day of judgment. So in the earliest versions of the Apostles' Creed, it says that Jesus descended into Hades, or we could just translate it the place of the dead. According to some scholars, the word hell was introduced into the creed by a mistaken monk in the fourth century named Rufinus. So when Jesus died... His body was laid in a grave, and his spirit descended to the place of the dead. And you might ask, well, what happened? What did he do there? Why did he go there? Well, I don't really know exactly. But there are some hints in Scripture that maybe Jesus went to the dead people in Hades, and he preached the gospel to them. And, uh, and he invited them to believe. And I go, well, that's one way of looking at those Scriptures. Maybe that's right. I'm not sure. But it sounds to me like something Jesus might do. And then Sunday came, and that's how we know that death does not have the last word. It says, the third day he rose again from the dead. Skeptics have diluted the resurrection, saying that means that Jesus' followers only just kind of felt his presence strongly. And this was later turned into stories of his appearing. But you know, I don't find that argument convincing. I wonder how many of Jesus' followers would have been willing to die for him just because once or twice they felt his presence strongly. Some have suggested that Jesus' disciples became convinced of the resurrection because they just, they just wanted to believe it so badly. But you know, when you read the Gospels, we find a very different story. Jesus' followers, they were, they were startled to see him. I mean, instead of wanting to believe, their first reaction was shock and disbelief. Some, of the, some have suggested that the stories of Jesus' resurrection appearances 
were invented to match the expectations from Old Testament prophecies. You know, most Jews back then believed that someday, way in the future, there would be a day of resurrection when all of the faithful would be raised to life. What they did not expect was that, was that the Messiah would be resurrected before that day when everyone else is raised. And so Jesus' resurrection did not match their expectations. It was only after his resurrection that Jesus had to show his followers from the Psalms and the prophets about how the Messiah would suffer and die and rise again. Some have suggested that the, that the Christian movement later invented these stories of Jesus' resurrection so that more people would believe that he's the Messiah. But this seems virtually impossible to me because I wonder how did the Christian movement just grow so rapidly as it did in Jerusalem if everybody knew that Jesus was still in his tomb right outside of town? History tells us that there were others who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, both before Jesus and after Jesus. Uh, but when those individuals died, maybe they were killed or executed or whatever, their movements just sort of fell away. Their followers fell away. Their movement died out. But something with Jesus was extraordinary. His movement did not die. Now, some Christians were stoned. Uh, some were fed to lions. Some were beheaded. Some were crucified. Uh, and yet his kingdom kept expanding. And I believe it was, was N.T. Wright who said that for the disciples to believe in Jesus' resurrection, they must have witnessed two things. The empty tomb and the appearance of Jesus. In order for people to believe in a resurrection, they had to believe both. An empty, and witness both an empty tomb and the appearance of Jesus. Think of it this way. If the tomb was empty, but Jesus did not appear to them, well, then you just have a matter of a missing corpse, right? On the other hand, if Jesus appeared to them, but his body was still in the tomb, then you're seeing a ghost, right? But they witnessed both the empty tomb and the appearance of Jesus. And not only did they see him, they touched him. They were with him and ate with him and drank with him. One more thing. If the gospel writers were making up the resurrection, if they were just sort of writing this story to fool people, convince people, they would never have had women as the first witnesses of the empty tomb and the first witnesses of the appearance of Jesus after his resurrection. Because back then... Sorry to say this, ladies, but women were not considered reliable witnesses. The testimony of a woman would not, was not admissible in court. The only reason that I can imagine that the gospel writers would have put the women as the first witnesses on the resurrection morning was because that's what happened. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his followers a number of times over a period of 40 days. And then what? The Apostles' Creed summarizes it here. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So did Jesus go 
up into outer space? I don't think so. He, I would say that he, he ascended and transitioned into a dimension of reality which may be very close to us but is invisible to us called heaven. And now Jesus is on the throne. Let me tell you, folks, that is part of the gospel. That Jesus is on the throne. Jesus has begun to reign. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, when, we say, when I say that Jesus is on the throne, I'm not saying something. I'm not saying that he controls the weather. I'm not saying that he influences the stock market. When I say that Jesus is on the throne, I'm saying that he is actively building his kingdom on this earth. And over all the world, he is bringing people to life with his truth and grace. His influence infiltrates every culture, kind of like the same way that dough influences when it's worked in, uh, yeast works into dough. Like when light is spreading into the darkness. Jesus is always working for good. He's always, he even is able to redeem our suffering. Jesus is on the throne. The book of Hebrews in the Bible says that the reign of Jesus is the anchor of our souls. That's a great way to think of it, isn't it? That the reign of Jesus is the anchor of our souls. And I can tell you that for me, it has become very consciously an anchor for my soul especially in recent times. I have invested my entire adult life serving, serving the Lord in the United Methodist Church, and now I am seeing this denomination torn apart from the inside out. Over the last six or seven months, I have been grieving about uh, the state of our denomination. I'm grieving about how the, the conflict of general conference is now being pushed down to every local church. And I'm grieving because I love this church. I love you all. I love Faith Westwood. And I don't want to see it divided. And I can tell you emotionally this has been, this has been a drain on me. Some, sometimes I have felt like giving up. There have been times when early retirement has sounded really attractive. Yeah. And yet God has come back to me and said, Steve, I need you here to walk this church through these times of transition. And one of the things that helps me is that I picture Jesus on the throne. And I remember that he is building his kingdom all over the world. Jesus was on the throne before 1968 when the United Methodist Church was formed. He'll be on the throne long after the United Methodist Church is gone. And this is the anchor of my soul in stormy times that he is on the throne. The last part of the Apostles' Creed we'll look at today is this. From there... He shall come to judge the living and the dead. One day Jesus will return. In his judgment, he will separate good from evil. That's kind of what judging is. It's a separation. 
like a harvester separating the wheat from the chaff, like a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. And he will judge with justice and mercy. He will judge with justice and mercy. When I was a, a new Jesus follower, I, you know, I was kind of like a lot of Christians back then, and I, I believed in a doctrine called the rapture. You know what the rapture is? I mean, I, I, thought, I kind of believed in it just because I read about it, and people, other people were believing in it, and I thought I was supposed to, you know? Uh, the rapture is the idea that one day Jesus is going to snatch up all his people from earth, take them away, and the unbelievers will be left behind to endure seven years of terrible tribulation. And after that, then Jesus will come and set up his final kingdom. Well, now many of us have come to see that the idea of the rapture is a fairly recent uh, development in Christian thought and is based on a faulty reading of a few scriptures. So the way I look at it, when Jesus comes, he's not going to come in, in two stages, in two phases. He's going to come once and for all. And I really don't know what that's going to look like. I could not give you a description of how that's going to happen. From our scripture reading that uh, uh, we heard just a little bit ago that Becky read, the, the apostle Peter announced this. Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There's a lot of good news in that. That the one who is the judge is the one who also offers forgiveness in his name. So, I'm going to ask you to stand up with me, will you? Stand up. And we're going to... Uh, worship God as we affirm our faith together. I invite you to join with me in the Apostles' Creed. If, if it's something you say, well, I'm not really a, a Christ follower yet, feel free to just listen and uh, just hear it, okay? Let's join together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Let's remain standing and join in that ancient prayer that we find at the very end of the book of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's say it together, shall we? Come, Lord Jesus. We look forward to the day when wars will cease and peace will reign over all nations. And so we pray together, come, Lord Jesus. We look forward to the day when racism will be removed and every person will be treated with dignity. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus. 
We look forward to the day when our resurrected bodies will no longer be subject to disease and death. And every person will be whole and healthy. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus. We look forward to the day when our conflicts over sexuality will be over. Jesus said at the resurrection, we will neither marry nor be given in marriage. On that day, we will be made holy. And so we come together now and pray, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long for your appearing. You have shown us that true power is not about the use of force or the threat of violence. On the cross, you bore our sin and shame so we could be set free. Jesus, we believe in the triumph of goodness because of your resurrection from the dead. We have hope for this world because you reign on the throne. Give us confidence that in all things, ultimately everything will be in your hands. We pray in your name. Amen.